0: Fortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself.
1: Good afternoon, you're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Grox.
2: That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee.
1: Coming up on today's show, we'll be talking about genes, lights, and drug manufacturing.
2: In addition, we'll be joined by Mr. Leander Caney, who will talk about the cult of Mac.
1: Also, we'll find out what estrus is.
2: So stay tuned for all of this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on Berkeley Grox.
1: the rocks I'm Franklin
2: I guess that makes me Charles Lee how you doing Frank
1: pretty good pretty good it's been really wet these days huh
2: it, uh, it keeps getting wetter and uh, you know actually I like it when I'm slippery when wet
1: ooh you're on a slippery slope there
2: <laughs> it is yeah I don't know where I'm gonna go from there perhaps I might turn Republican uh, which would not be a good thing
1: <laughs> are you sure you're not a closet Republican <laughs> uh,
2: if I was gonna come out of a closet about many things that would be the one I'd be most afraid of actually <laughs> uh, so what's going on in science this week well are you proud to be a human? I guess so. I mean, considering the things that humans have going for us: opposable thumbs. Yeah. That's nice. <laughs> Speech that's good too.
1: And of course, hundreds of thousands of genes, right?
2: I thought the uh, last figure was 40,000 genes.
1: Actually, it's been pared down again. Oh my, okay. <laughs> it's about, it's down to 20,000.
2: Only 20,000 now.
1: Which is actually only 14% more than that of a nematode. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Which again is a small little worm for uh, those who are unaware. Yes. Well, that's that's fine. I, I only consider myself at least 5% better than a nematode.
1: So this was a, a reanalysis that was published in the recent issue of Nature, and it was done by the International Human Genome Sequencing Consortium.
2: Okay, and so they've uh, basically been able to figure out the newer number of genes how? Uh,
1: well, let's see. I guess this new sequence covers more than 99% of the uh, gene-containing human genome. Uh, it turns out 20% of the genome is heterochromatic or repetitive non-coding DNA, so that's why maybe we're getting greater hits before that were actually redundancies or nonsense.
2: Okay, I see. So uh, basically, I guess we were counting things that weren't genes before, and now we have a right. better idea,
1: or you know, identical copies. Okay,
2: well, that's uh, that's really interesting to know. So what uh, what do they suggest this means? I guess as far as why humans are more complicated than, say, uh, a worm.
1: Uh, well, it doesn't really suggest very much, except that in terms of the gene sequence, we're less complicated than we right. had originally thought. Right. This technique is actually quite accurate. They think it, the error is within 0.001%.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess a lot of people have thought for quite some time that it's basically not the number of genes, but rather their interaction that really is right, the complexity. Right. So you had 14% more, but it goes up combinatorial. It could yeah. combine these extra genes in a number of right. ways, which is interesting. Complexity, huh? Complexity in nature, yes. Uh, that's cool, so I, I have new brothers in nature.
1: Actually, one more interesting statistic. We have 15% less genes than that of a Thale Crest plant.
2: Okay. <laughs> well, you know, I've always known the Thale Crest plant was much more uh, complex than I was. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so this is interesting work. Uh, it's in uh, recent edition of Nature 431. <laughs> All right, so uh,
2: do you enjoy uh, sitting at red lights? At red light? You mean red light districts? or? <laughs> well, you know, what do you do in the red light district, actually?
1: I don't know. It's so dark there anyway. I don't <laughs> think I see any lights.
2: Except uh, for the red light. <laughs> um, well, uh, so have you ever like wound up sitting at like a red light in the middle of the night just waiting for it to turn green?
1: Yeah, and if you go fast enough, you can use the uh, Doppler shift and make it green. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's about point four. uh was it forty percent the speed of light? Or something? Forty percent
2: the speed of light. Yes, and you can go. You can make it green. Yeah. Another cool. way of making it green, however, though, is uh, perhaps by forcing it to switch to green.
1: Well, wow, using one of those what little uh, blue boxes or gold <laughs> boxes, one of those devices uh, they uh, they have,
2: uh, or the remote control. Actually, uh, this is a proposal that was uh, forwarded by Carlos Gershenson at the Free University of Brussels in Belgium. Mm-hmm and he suggests that uh, it, it wouldn't necessarily be under the control of one particular person but that groups of people just by uh, you know mass approaching a red light mm-hmm. could force the light to switch so sort of an adaptive control of the traffic signal.
1: Oh okay. And are these adaptive controls in most US traffic signals or Uh
2: in fact they're not they're actually apparently used in some uh, rural areas of Britain right now. Mm-hmm. But he's suggesting that um, you could probably implement them in grid like cities and have it uh, increase the efficiency by say 30%. Wow. So it's it's interesting because uh, he did a number of simulations on the computer and showed that compared to just static responses where you have timed red green signal changes, mm-hmm. if you actually had signals that responded to the amount of traffic going through, mm-hmm. it could actually adapt quite quickly and uh, wow. al- arrive at a global solution for uh, efficient traffic.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, one thing I thought would be kind of fun, if, especially if you're mad, is uh, get your shotgun and just <laughs> blow off a few traffic lights <laughs> while you're going by.
2: Yes, uh, somehow I, I think that skirts the edge of legality there. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> That's <laughs> you know, kind of road rage. Yeah, I suppose you could just run the red light. You know, <laughs> you don't necessarily have to uh, destroy it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> But I'm not going to stop you if that's your, if that's your bag. <laughs> okay, well, so this is interesting work, and uh, this was published in the recent edition of a journal called Arxiv.
1: So what would you do if you had an old weapons plant and it was no longer legal to keep it?
2: I would wait for the US government to try and invade it <laughs> and hide all the weapons.
1: Oh, there's another alternative. Uh, <laughs> apparently, Libya is converting its old um, uh, weapons facilities into drug-making facilities.
2: Oh, okay. That's What kind of drugs?
1: Uh, well, it's drugs for treating AIDS, malaria, and tuberculosis.
2: Oh, okay. So not drugs of mass destruction.
1: No. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay, well, that's, that's quite interesting. So um, are they trying to actually s- make a a move for, like, a position in the global uh, biopharmaceuticals market?
1: Uh, no, this is actually... Just making low-cost drugs so uh, to serve the African nations, but I guess the purpose here is so that they can gain the trust of the Western countries in terms of not making any more weapons of mass destruction. Okay, that's quite uh, good. These facilities have to be monitored for like 10 years, right? And it's actually an alteration of the original Chemical Weapons Conventions Treaty from 1997, and hopefully with Libya's move, it's going to encourage other countries to do the same thing. Uh, other rogue countries who have weapons of mass destruction plants and want to not clean.
2: <laughs> uh well that's cool. So uh you know maybe they can start producing uh you know medical marijuana or something. <laughs> <laughs> Which would be even better. I think uh that's what the Middle East needs is really uh the hippie movement to take place. <laughs> well that's kind of cool. So um, are they just going to be uh producing uh, specialty drugs for the region because I know for instance certain dra- uh diseases like AIDS for instance. Right. Yeah, it's
1: especially for a region and it has uh, strong support from the US, uh, UK and uh, mm-hmm. most of the western countries.
2: Okay. Well, that's um, who would have thought that uh, other countries would support drugs instead of weapons, but <laughs> always a good thing.
1: And this is an interesting article in the October twenty-fifth issue of Chemical and Engineering News.
2: Okay. Well, uh, so are you a bit psychotic?
1: I think neurotic.
2: Neurotic. Okay.
1: Yes. And what's that term when you use for people who are always sleepy? Narcoleptic. narcoleptic. Okay, I think that's the uh, more proper term.
2: (laughs) Well, I don't know. I guess we could get you some amphetamines. (laughs) That might help. (laughs) Caffeine. (laughs) Or caffeine, yeah. That's a little bit more legal. Um, well, so, but a group of researchers have uh, now found out that can- cannabis actually boosts the risk of psychosis in some patients.
1: Is that good or bad?
2: The psychotic world can actually be a little bit more uh, in- interesting. Entertaining. Yes. But this has actually been known for quite some time. They've uh, shown that uh, there is a correlation between uh, psychosis and cannabis use. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't really clear whether or not people who were psychotic just generally were more apt to use cannabis or not.
1: But I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't you think that perhaps any uh, drug that causes enough stress in your system would cause psychosis?
2: I, I think probably generally, especially a drug like uh, you know THC, which is the active ingredient in right. marijuana, presumably could have global effects. Yeah, and this is actually one of their suggestions that because it increases the amount of dopamine in the system, Uh which originally leads to pleasurable feelings. But they say in the long term, leads to very psychotic sort of episodes. So it's interesting because uh, they found in in the study, which was the first study really to look at the effects of cannabis use rather than just looking at these correlations, uh, they found that 10% of people who are already vulnerable to such problems have like a risk, increased risk of psychosis. There's actually a 6% greater chance of developing a psychotic episode after using cannabis than not using it and in fact for a certain number of people the 10% or so who are already vulnerable to such disease due to hereditary type problems Mm. the the risk jumped up to 25% clearly showing I guess a risk between uh, the cannabis use and developing some forms of psychosis
1: wow I guess I should delay my drug addiction then
2: uh, you know, well, that's up to you. <laughs> What's so great about reality, anyway? <laughs> it's
1: not that pure, anyway. Uh, yeah,
2: nor unvarnished. Uh, but this is very fascinating work, and uh, I guess for all of those uh, pot smokers out there who are interested in in this and uh, who aren't already psychotic, and this was uh, an interesting piece, and it was in the uh, recent edition of uh, Nature News. Oh, and of course, anyone listening to the show might also be psychotic as well.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and that's all for a look at current developments in the world of science this week. This is Burke Grok, you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, Leander Kane will join us to talk about his book, The Cult of Mac. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Groks. In a world of diversity, there's always room for more religions. Today we're going to talk about one of the more modern ones, which had its beginnings about 20 years ago. After a embattled existence, today it is thriving, and its members are actively recruiting people in their battle against mediocrity. These are the Cult of Mac. And joining us today is the author of the book by its title, Leander Connie from Wired News. Mr. Connie, thanks for joining us on Berkeley Groks today. You're welcome.
0: Thanks for inviting
1: me. Tell us a little bit about your book and how you got interested in writing about it?
0: Uh, well, the book's uh, a, a book about Mac culture, and uh, I started writing it when I was working as a reporter for Wired News covering Apple and the sort of Mac uh, Mac culture beat. I saw there was a pretty big subculture out there that no one else was really was writing about. So I collected material and thought this this would make a nice book. Great.
1: And uh, are you yourself a Mac fan?
0: Yeah, <laughs> I've used Mac since high school.
1: You can almost lick it, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it is like that. It's so, uh, it, it's a, so seductive. It's a strange... Uh, item, you know, no other, no other product that I can think of exerts such an attraction. Uh, very hard to pin down why, though.
1: <laughs> That's still a mystery, huh?
0: Well, yeah, I, there's all sorts of aspects, but, um, you know, it, it, why it appeals to me more than, you know, like, a car, I'm not interested in cars, I'm not really interested in clothes, I'm not interested in watches, you know, all the other sort of t- toys that men are traditionally interested in, you know, none of them really sort of gain my attention like the Mac did. And I think, you know, it's because the Mac taps into your creativity and you can communicate through it and you can create stuff with it. They're, they're, it's so versatile. It's a real, as a product, it's a real pleasure to use.
1: Right. So what exactly is the of Mac? I mean, who are these people? Is it just a marketing ploy or is it really a, a lifestyle uh, vision?
0: Yeah, good question. I think it's a bit of both. Um, it, um, you know, there's, I don't know if there's anything like your a typical Mac User obviously uh, they appeal to graphic artists and, and other filmmakers, videographers, people who um, tend to use computers for creative tasks. You know th- those people are identified as your typical Mac user, but it, it runs a pretty broad spectrum. I mean you have everything from retired military admirals, you know, who use it to kids, uh, you know, in elementary school. So yeah, it's a pretty broad church. Um, and then of course you know Apple, I think, um, has always in its marketing played up its countercultural image. You remember the whole Think Different campaign, they try to make the brand. to um, people who think of themselves as, as free thinkers, creative types. So uh, it's a little bit of both. I think you know have contributed to the uh, devoted following.
1: So I've noticed in the Mac culture, there seems to be this, I guess, this bond of brotherhood or sisterhood. What can you tell us about that
0: uh, with um, Mac users? Uh, yes. Yeah, I think um, that, that's one of the attractions of the platform is that uh, you you tend to uh, users tend to sort of join a community of li- like-minded people uh, whose interests extend beyond just the computer. You know, it's um, yeah. You know, whether I, I I don't know if that's true of other platforms too. I, I it's definitely not true of the Windows platform. Is it? <laughs> Linux maybe maybe the Amiga maybe that's because there's a bit of it's kind of it's somewhat a defensive uh, community you know they've always been under siege and uh, on the defense against Microsoft and the hordes of conformity you know the forces of conformity they've always had to have a little bit of a siege mentality there I don't know whether that's I think that's contributed to a certain extent one of the attractions of using the Mac is that it's not Microsoft and so you can you know you can you can sort of it uh, contributes to your identity by saying you know you can look at Microsoft and say that's everything I'm not
1: and in researching your book what are some of the interesting characters you've come across
0: there are a lot you know there are, what I was into, what I found strange is that all the different ways in which people express their devotion to the platform you know there were, there, there were there's a guy in Japan um, who makes models really beautiful detailed models um, uh, out of paper of every of every Mac that's been produced, you know, you can download these things as PDFs and print them out and make your own origami mags. So but the the amount of detail he puts into making these models is, is really quite spectacular. You know? It's a very um, specialist hobby. Um. Oh, there's a guy called Taylor Barcroft who spent years going to all these different Mac shows, you know, coast to coast in an RV, and that became his sort of full-time occupation f- for almost a decade, which you know was quite unusual. The people who get the tattoos. That's something I don't. <laughs> Really stand, but I think people who get tattoos think it's perfectly natural for for people to get like an apple tattoo. There was a guy who finished his apartment out of um, uh, Mac boxes, right? I saw that Macintosh boxes. Yeah, he was kind of unusual. There was a, there was a practical element to that though, because he was he was kind of a starving student, so he couldn't really afford regular furniture anyway. So he was killing two birds with one stone. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's been. Um, and there was another there was another story that uh, that's probably worth telling. There was um, a hoax last year on the web. This um, someone pretended to have been given a, uh, a pa- an expensive Power Mac by his parents, but he was a PC user and he didn't really like the Mac, so he ripped out its insides and replaced it with some cheap uh, generic um, components from Intel and documented this whole thing in, in a series of photographs on the website. And this um, caused outrage and uproar. He had thousands of letters from outraged Mac fans and a whole series of death threats, too, which um, people tracked him down and they left death threats on his answering machine and stuff. You know, even when he said it was all just a joke, I don't think people believed him, thinking that he was trying to get out of this. But that was really, you know, that was really uh, extreme, the reaction, um, and and totally inappropriate, I think, to the, you know, to the the crime that he committed. So that was kind of weird, you know, I, I really thought that was a little bit unsettling you know, a bit overzealous. And then, of course, there's lots of journalists who complain about getting hate mail. You know, every time they post something that's critical of Apple or the Mac, they are besieged by, um, you know, these hordes of uh, crazed Mac zealous. And I've definitely been at the end of, you know, I've had my share of that. But I think mainly that what they, you know, the sloppy thinking and, and givens about Apple and the Mac, they tend to get repeated in the press. And it was a reaction to that. And I think Mac fans, you know, they have heard these things over and over. So they tend to be a little... They shoot from the hip a little when they, uh, when they see them the, repeating in the press over and over again.
1: So how, how much influence do you think these, uh, these Mac followers have on the press and in, you know, the general uh, public opinion of the, uh, the Macintosh platform? Are they really helping proliferate its
0: cost? Um, yeah, you could argue that. You know, I looked at the Mac Evangelist in the late 90s, which was run by uh, Guy Kawasaki, who um, wrote several best-selling books on uh, using evangelism, um, evangelistic techniques uh, in marketing. And um, you might argue that his, his followers, the Mac evangelists, you know, really helped save Apple because it was in such a death spiral. It really wasn't getting any support from anywhere else except its customers. And they used to, you know, he would organize people to, to volunteer their time at weekends to go into stores to help sell Macintosh as unpaid, unofficial salespeople. And they would tie them up. You know, they would evangelize the platform to everyone and anybody they met, and they were very committed. Um, and, of course, they would take on the press. Which uh, had um, concluded that Apple was doomed, and so they were committed to spreading the opposite message that no, it wasn't. in Survive, and of course it did. You know, uh, the, you, people can attribute that to the return of Steve Jobs, which certainly uh, has had you know the most amazing effect on the company. But I think that, you know the customers should be given some of the credit too.
1: So these days, in the news, we hear about the iPod almost every day now. Do you think that's the next big thing from Apple, or is it just uh, a niche a market? No, no. It's. It, uh,
0: I think it, it. It looks like it's going to be. It's going to be huge, and, and Apple's, you know, sort of in a, in a very interesting position. It could be 1984 all over again. You know, they're about to dominate the next big wave of um, technology. The, the whole digital lifestyle thing. Everyone's a nerd these days. Who hasn't got a computer? That definitely wasn't true five years ago. And as digital entertainment goes onto the net, you know, Apple has a very, very good chance of um, dominating that. The whole office productivity era uh, that Microsoft came to dominate um, is over. I mean, it's a commodity. You know, I mean, it, it has very low margins. This new era, you know, of digital, t- 40-inch plasma TVs and movies on demand and music on demand. Apple has a very good prospects of dominating that. Uh, but of course, they're up against <laughs> this giant illegal monopoly that has, um, time and time again, leveraged its monopoly position in one market to dominate another. So. You know, it, the game's not over yet. But uh, it's interesting what's happening with the iPod. I mean, it's a huge success, and, and it's growing exponentially. You know, they've gone from 2 million iPods to 4 million iPods last year. They're looking at 20-odd million iPods next year, which is crazy. It's insane. And, and, it, and it'll become a whole platform for digital music. No one can compete with that. They won't be dislodged.
1: And is so, there a halo effect where people who are iPod users actually switch from PCs to Macs? Well, there's
0: a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of um, anecdotes about that. And I guess there's some hard data, too. You know, Apple's, Apple's own... Numbers of um, people coming into the Apple stores and, and coming away with Macs, they claim that, you know, I think it is 50% of their customers at the Apple stores are, are first time customers to the Mac. Mm-hmm. And you certainly see, you hear it anecdotally. I mean, you, you see people. Who have bought an iPod for the first time, and they start to—you can see them pressing their noses against the windows down at the local mall, you know, looking lustfully at all this uh, lovely equipment. So I think, yeah, it, it um, I, I think it's starting to have an effect, and I think we'll definitely see, you know, hard evidence of that this next year.
1: So, what are some of the more, uh, I guess, interesting but unintended uses for Macintoshes that you've seen?
0: You think about the Mac aquarium. where they turn it—you can—you can rip it out the inside and turn it into aquarium. Someone uh, has a project going at the moment where they're building um, a um, an iPod speaker out of an old Mac Classic. So they're taking it. The, so instead of putting fi- water and a fish inside of it, they're putting a big subwoofer and some tweeters. And because it's carrying handle, it becomes a portable speaker system for the iPod. Mm-hmm. Can't think now. I have to look at my book <laughs> <laughs> to see what else I did. Was there anything you were thinking of?
1: Wasn't someone trying to build something where you can smoke pot with
0: it? <laughs> oh my God! Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's two guys turn it into a bong. That <laughs> was the weirdest one. <laughs> I know that that that's a, that's a very stonerish idea. I think uh, yeah, they've been hitting the bung when they dreamed that one up. <laughs> yeah, that was quite funny. He said they took it to land parties and and um, smoked it there. And then, funny enough, um, I got a an email from. Someone at Apple showing a um, multi-user bong, also out of a, an old um, Mac classic, so that four people could share it at the same time. I did a bit of research, and it's like it was, it's on the Apple campus somewhere. Oh, okay. <laughs> in Cupertino, so it's the official Apple bong, as far as I could make out. Of course, officially, that was denied. Oh, in fact, it was ignored, my request for comment. But, um, yeah, that was that was definitely the most unusual one. Thanks for reminding me.
1: All right, well, I guess we are uh, running a little bit out of time. Are there any last words you'd like to add about your book or the, the cult of Mac?
0: Um, it was a real pleasure to look at this stuff for a couple of years, you know, and go and to take a look at a community um, and to try and wrap it up into a book. And I was really pleased um, the designer that um, was hired, you know, really made it look like a Mac. It's a very Mac-like, the book. Mm-hmm um, very colorful, lots of graphics, and it was really a labor of love, so, you know, I'd like to say thanks to Derek Yee for, uh, for really doing a knockout job on making it, you know, he's a Mac user himself, and, uh, he, um, really understood the, uh, the devotion, you know, so he wanted to make something that, that reflected that, and I think he, he really did a good job of that.
1: Great, thanks for joining us on Berkeley Rocks today.
0: All right, Frank, you're very welcome.
1: And we were just talking to Leander Caney, editor at Wired Magazine and author of The Cult of Mac. His book is now available at Barnes and Nobles, Amazon, and elsewhere at bookstores near you. This is Virgo Groxy listening to here on ninety point seven FM. Coming back, we'll find out what Estrus is, so stay tuned. Now here's Dr. Lecter with the answer to
2: last week's question of the week. Thank you very much there, Frankie. That's right, it is Dr. Lecter, and I'm enjoying my side order of fava beans and a nice order of Chianti. Ooh, but you know, the thing that makes it even better is when I'm dining with a woman in estrus. But what is estrus? Ooh, well, when I'm dining, I like to find women who are sexually receptive. and that is the time of the year when they're in estrus. Ooh. And now I can order the silence of the estrus. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, and uh, now here's Tokyo Kid with uh, this week's uh, question of the week. Uh, everybody knows what uh, libido is, uh, but what is uh, albedo? Is it also as uh, exotic? Uh, if you know the answer or think you know the answer, email us at uh, groks at hotmail.com. Uh, you won't uh, win anything, but you might shine a little brighter. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox.
2: Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology.
1: If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Franklin.
2: And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Katie.